Hello, all my spooky true crime connoisseurs. Welcome back to an episode of Crime Ghoul. I can't believe I'm saying this, but October has come to an end, which means no more Ghoultober, but that's okay because this month is also themed, and if you've looked at my social media, you will already know that Notorious November is now in full swing. So, hey, hey, <laughs> I'm so excited to bring you Notorious November because these are cases that I know very well, and I'm excited to bring them to you. So I hope you had a wonderful Halloween, and come on now, people like us, it's spooky time all year round. It's not just spooky season for us, it's a spooky lifestyle. So, goodbye October, and we're going to continue going with this dreadful year of 2020, and we're going to go full force into the holidays, so I mean, I guess that is a good thing. It's it's a hopeful thing, so we'll see what happens with this new COVID world we are living in. But for right now, I want you to forget about COVID, and I want you to forget about the pandemic and all the just the craziness that's going on in the world. If you're from the U.S., you know we've got a huge election coming up. This is just monumental for our generation, so all that stress, just let it go and decompress it, and let's just listen about some true crime. It is a pretty disturbing case we've got here, but you know what? For me, true crime, for some reason, is my outlet. Listening to stories, reading, well, cases, listening to true crime cases on podcasts and reading about them, it's just something I like to do, and as morbid as that may sound, it's a good stress reliever for me, so I'm hoping that you guys can just indulge in this case and let go of the outside world, and let's just focus on the world of Ed Kemper III, because he is going to be our very first episode of Notorious November. So with that being said, cozy on up, pour yourself a cup of coffee, brew yourself a cup of coffee, I should say, or pour yourself a glass of wine, or perhaps take a shot of whiskey, because this story is absolutely not for the faint of heart. Thanks for listening. All right, guys, so here we are back with another episode. Again, my name is Brittany, and I am the host of Crime Ghoul, a true crime podcast. Obviously, you've garnered that from my introduction today already, but just in case you didn't know, I just wanted to put my actual name out there and let you know that, yes, I am the host of this lovely podcast. So if you guys have been on my social media, you saw that I just did a giveaway. Congratulations. Shout out to Angelique for winning the True Crime mug. I had a lot of fun doing this giveaway, pulling names out, you know, well, pulling a name out of the hat and just being able to send a little gift to someone made me really excited. So I saw that you guys really love that. So let me know. DM me, drop a comment. Let me know what you thought about the giveaway and what you hope to see me do in the future. If you want to see me do some more giveaways. And um, yeah, if you have any case suggestions for Notorious November, please send them my way. I already have ideas in my mind, but I want to hear what, well, I want to know what you guys want to hear about. I know what I want to hear about, but it's everybody else, you know, I don't want to be selfish. I want to spread the true crime cases around the way they want to be spread around, if that makes any sense at all. I just want to hear from you guys. So leave me a comment, 
drop me a DM, whatever. Um, again, crime ghoul underscore is my Instagram crime ghoul on Twitter, crime ghoul on Facebook. That's where you're going to find me being social in the social media networking world. So definitely check it out if you haven't already and, you know, feel free to engage with me. I'm always happy to have new friends. So here we are with the case of Edmund Kemper, the third big Ed, Ed, whatever you want to call him. Creep. Big creep. That's what I think of him. But Edmund Emil Kemper III was born December 18th, 1948. That's right, ladies and gents. He is a Sagittarius. Okay, so before I get into the grisly content of this man's world, I'm going to tell you about his early life. And it's not, it's not a very nice life at all. You know, the beginning of Ed's life. It's very sad, and it makes me so mad because this is the reason why we cannot have nice things in the world because people don't know how to raise their kids or they don't care about raising their kids. And if that's the case, then just don't have one. Sorry, that's my opinion. Leave it. Take it. Take it or leave it. Whatever. But um, when I tell you this, I think you might feel the same way, honestly. So, so I'm bringing you guys to California, Santa Cruz, um, to be exact, is where much of this um, true crime part of this will take place. But before then, you have to know about this guy, this man, Ed. He was born in Burbank, California. His dad, a World War II veteran, and his mom, Carnell, a.k.a. the devil, the devil, um, were his parents. They were married. They had a very terrible and damaging relationship. Damaged Ed, honestly. I'm not too sure. I don't want to speak for his siblings, but I'm sure it had to affect them in some type of way. But Carnell was not a nice mom. She was not the warm mom you look for or you think of. I guess much of what society has taught us. A mom is supposed to be caring and warm and coddling um, to an extent. And they're supposed to be there for you. They're supposed to save you from bumps in the night. And you're, you, you're supposed to feel safe under mom's wing. Um, to me, I think that's what a mom should be. And to much of society, this is what we've been taught. But clearly, Carnell didn't catch the memo. I'm guessing Carnell had to have had a bad upbringing. But again, I don't know much about her either. So I'm j this is just speculation. Um, when I talk about Carnell and what I think she went through to um, create her into the mother she became to Ed, but she was clearly a disturbed woman. She was verbally abusive. Nothing was ever good enough for this lady. And she refused to coddle Ed in his infancy into child, early childhood because she was afraid that this would make him gay. He would turn gay. He would be a sissy if she showed him any type of love or comfort. How does that make sense? I don't have a damn idea, but clearly she got that idea from somewhere. So Ed was kind of um, brushed under the carpet, if that's, I guess that's my the best way I can put it, but he was really left in the dark, and I'm talking figuratively and literally, he was left in the dark. As Ed started growing up, Ed was a pretty tall kid from the get-go. He skyrocketed 
um, and stood very high over his pupils and his siblings. And his mom feared him for whatever reason. You know, I don't think he was just born being weird or creepy. You know, I'm sure he was a normal baby and toddler up until, you know, a certain point, because when you're neglected and you don't have the love you need, that tends, it tends to happen that way. But basically, from very early on, mom thought it was a good idea to keep Ed separated from the rest of the family, which, no, that's never a good idea. Um, while mom and the siblings got to go to bed upstairs in their nice, warm, comfy beds, Ed was exiled to the basement because she feared that he would assault, well, he would one day assault herself and her other children. Why did she think that? I don't know. At this point, dad had left the family. He couldn't take Cornell anymore. She was an alcoholic and abusive to him. Um, he kind of fled the home and this left Ed with Cornell and his siblings. So mom thought it was a good idea to shove him in the basement, so to speak. And during this time, to give you a visual, Ed would go down every night down these creaky stairs, these creaky wooden stairs. This wasn't some type of finished basement. No, this was like how I think of it, the way he explained it in an interview. It was a cellar. It seems like a cellar, like a drippy, cold cellar where, you you know, like you just hear the water drop coming from God knows where. You just hear it dripping on the floor. It's freezing all the time. No matter how many blankets or clothing you have on, you just can't seem to get warm. The pipes are cracking and making creepy noises. He's downstairs with the burner, which heats the rest of the house. So if you guys have ever had a burner, which I have, or if you think about the movie Home Alone, when Macaulay Culkin goes downstairs, he's terrified of his basement and he thinks of the burner as a monster because of the way it looks and the way it sounds. This is much of what Ed lived with at night, every night. Um, he was terrified of his basement, just like any little kid would be terrified of a basement. This kid didn't need a cellar. He needed a warm bed, and he needed a mom who wasn't abusive. Now, Cornell seemed to only abuse Ed. He, she didn't really abuse the other kids. It was basically his father and himself, and I don't know if this was because... Um, because of Carnell's relationship with men as she grew up or what it was, but I do know that Ed's father was a pushover. He was pretty much a walking doormat. So the fact that he got up and left the situation, I'm pretty shocked about because he, he tolerated a lot of shit from Carnell. So, you know, I guess there was something that, you know, it was the straw that broke the camel's back and he finally left. But unfortunately, this displaced all of Carnell's frustration and anger onto Ed. And I'm sure it's because Ed looked like his father, or one would guess that, you know, Ed resembled the father the most. So, you know, I guess that's why. And Ed was the middle child. I don't know what, you know, that says about anything. I truly believe that she took out her frustrations on Ed because he was a male and looked like his father. I don't think it had anything to do with him being the middle child, but um, I know some people say the middle child gets neglected, so I'm sure that has a little bit to do with it. But for the most part, I'm going to speculate and assume that he just looked much like um, his father, and this was a constant reminder to Cornell that she did not keep her husband, and she wouldn't keep any husband, as a matter of fact, going down 
um, the line, going further down the line. But yeah, so the dad left the family. Um, when he leaves, Carnell turns even like more into a heavier alcoholic. She's emotionally and physically abusive even more so to Ed than she ever was. In the time that Ed spent in the basement at night and through, you know, this carries on from childhood to um, early teens into early adulthood that he was kind of in. Actually, I would say really it's just like adolescent is when. Yeah, we're going to go with he goes from childhood to adolescent in this dark cellar like basement. And in this time, he starts to develop dark fantasies. He starts decapitating his sister's dolls. And it's even said that he stalked his second grade teacher at one point, spying on her while she undressed and just when she went home. And at, he was in second grade at the time that he was stalking his sister. I mean, I'm sorry, stalking his teacher. So if you think about second grade, what is that, seven years old, eight years old? That's not normal. And while he stalked his um, teacher, he carried around his dad's bayonet knife, which why does a seven or eight year old possess this type of weapon? I don't know people, but clearly this was not a normal family dynamic. So at 15 years old, Ed stood six, four, so six feet, four inches. He was a tall 15 year old. Okay. Um, and at this age, you're going through all kinds of weird teen angsty moments. Um, it's a really important stage of your development into an adult. You know, obviously childhood's really important. And the fact that he was left in a cellar in early childhood was no good. But the fact that um, his mom blatantly feared him at the age of 15 and, you know, would tell him he would amount to nothing and he would be nothing. Ed ran away to go find his dad. Um, he had enough. He had been neglected by his mom and now he's being told, you know, he's going to be nothing. And at this point, you know, dad's been out of the picture for a bit. He started like almost romanticizing. I don't even want to say romanticizing because that's not the right word, but he was like glorifying his father. Um, he didn't see his dad very much at all. So in his head, he had this perfect picture of his dad and like, wow, what would it be like if I was with dad instead of mom? And he decided, you know what, I'm going to go run away to dad. Dad's this amazing guy. He had early childhood memories of his father. So he kind of went off of those, you know, he knew his mom as the cold and evil parent, whereas his dad was not. His dad, you know, gave him a bayonet knife. His dad um, was that male figure he needed. And, you know, I don't know about you ladies out there, but going through 15 and 16, I needed my mom. You need a mom if you're usually if you're a girl, like there's just things you don't really want to talk about with your dad that you can easily talk about with your mom. And I'm sure the same was for Ed. He was going through these changes and I'm sure he needed a male figure in his life. He wanted his father. So he ran away to dad and people. What happens after this was an extremely low blow. But in a sense, I kind of understand, um, so bear with me here, but Ed ran away to his dad, he found his dad, and at this point, his dad had a new wife, she had remarried, so he was seeking asylum with his father and his stepmother, and Ed would be a little weird and was stressing out his dad's new wife. There was one account where he was he was caught watching his mom, well, his new stepmother undress, and it was making her feel really uncomfortable. 
they had a new kid, um, a new kid, that's an interesting way to put it, but they had a new son. Um, this was, you know, between his father and stepmother. So he had a stepbrother and they didn't like the influence that Ed was having on him. He was a little aggressive and jumping right back to, um, Ed exhibiting weird behavior in his adolescent, well, early adolescent years. It was um, said that he would play very weird games with his sister, with his youngest sister to be exact, but both siblings, they'd play a game called Gas Chamber, which obviously for little kids, that's not, that doesn't sound like a normal game, but um, they would kind of, you know, one kid, one kid would be the person who's going to get gas and the other person would be like the executioner who pushes the button and they would play out the scenario of being gassed. I wonder, like, I'm just speculating, but I'm wondering if this has anything to do with their father being a World War II veteran. Like, did he ever talk about the gas chambers and the Nazis a little more extensively than he should have for little children? And is this how this played out and how they started playing this game and living this kind of scenario that scared them? They played it out. That tends to happen with children in therapy and um, play therapy. They kind of show their fears through playing. So perhaps this is something that happened. I don't know. I'm just taking a shot in the dark there, but it would make sense. But that's the game they would play. They would scream in agony um, until they, quote unquote, died. You know, someone would have to die and the game's over. There was another game they played where they would wrap each other in a blanket and they'd have to escape the blanket with no help. And obviously they'd have to try to wiggle out of there. Their arms were wrapped in the blanket, but this is not really a normal game for children to play but this is where we're at and this is the weird things that ed would kind of do with his siblings which already should come off as a red flag so um you know at this point he goes he finds his dad and the wife and yeah we bounce back to there and the dad tells him you know you can't live here sorry you can't live here because you're making my new wife uncomfortable and I just don't think I can house you here. I don't want you to be teaching our son these things. So you're going to have to go move in with your grandparents. So there's a lot of things I'm going to tell you guys about his childhood that I haven't mentioned yet, but we'll get to it. Um, but it's just really more red flags that popped up that shows that there's some type of pathology going on here for Ed. So he moves in with his grandparents and... Yeah, grandma was actually just like Cornell, and this bothered Ed so much. It made him so uncomfortable. He hated his mom, and now he's living with basically the same exact type of person, his grandma. And, you know, he did love his grandfather. He didn't think badly of him, just more so of the grandma. They gifted him with a twenty-two caliber shotgun or rifle. I'm not really proficient in guns and knowing the names and slang for them but a 22 caliber whatever was given to him as a gift which probably as we can already tell ed has gone through some shit and definitely doesn't or probably doesn't think the way a normal 15 year old boy should be thinking so to give him a gun is that really a good idea no but in the grandparents defense they lived on a farm a huge farm in north Fo north fork california so you know when you work on a farm is it really unheard of to have a gun or give kids guns or teach them how to shoot no it's not but unfortunately ed is a different kind of adolescent and he definitely shouldn't have been given a gun but 
the grandma feared Ed just like um, Carnell feared Ed. She went as far as hiding her pistol that she had from him in fears that he would try to kill her with it. But I'm sorry, Grandma, that's not really going to do much when you gave the kid a gun. I mean, Grandpa was more gung-ho about this gun than Grandma. Grandma didn't really want Ed to have a gun, but regardless, the boy had a gun anyway, so you can hide your pistol all you want. I think we can kind of tell what's coming with where I'm going with this. But lo and behold, Grandpa goes shopping one day, um, grocery shopping, and Ed and Grandma are left on the farm, and they get into an argument. It's not really documented what the argument was about, but Ed had it, um, and he would kill his grandma. He would shoot her three times in the head, and three times is pretty excessive when one shot probably would do it, so it's kind of a little bit of overkill right there. And then Grandpa was coming back, and Ed was scared. Ed was scared for Grandpa to come back because... He didn't want him to see his wife dead on the floor, especially in the grisly manner she had been killed. So Ed, a 15-year-old boy who doesn't have a fully developed brain, comes to the logical idea that he should kill Grandpa to spare him. Because, you know, if Grandpa sees Grandma, chances are he's probably going to have a heart attack and he's going he's gonna to die anyway. So to spare him this, you know, feeling of, sadness from not no longer having a wife and this anger towards ed ed's just going to get rid of grandpa and as soon as grandpa came home and walked up with the groceries he shot grandpa in the head as well and there you have it ed's 15 years old and has now killed his grandma and grandpa so ed not knowing what to do he immediately goes and calls his mom and he's like what do i do i killed grandma and grandpa and obviously she's horrified at this point, disgusted even. And she says, well, if you don't call the police, I'm going to do it for you. So you need to turn yourself in because you just committed murder. And there's really not much more you can do about this. So Ed decides to call the police. He lets the authority know exactly what he did. When he's asked on the phone why he did it, he, he simply states that he just wanted to know, he wanted to see what it would be like, which is a pretty chilling chilling thing to say. So Ed was given an IQ test when he was brought into the police department and all that, when he was brought in for evaluation, and he had a score of 136, which is near genius level. He was a smart man, and he took the test again while he was admitted at um, a psychiatric, a forensic psychiatric hospital, and he scored a 140, which is even better than his first score. This boosted his ego tremendously, because you see, Ed hated school. When he was in school, he was referred to as slow, a dope, dopey. His mom constantly belittled him. He didn't think he was intelligent. And then he took that test and he realized, like, shit, I'm pretty smart. And in some interviews, he was saying that when he was at school, his teacher, like, one teacher just had this monumental, um, well, created this monumental moment for him. It was really an eye-opener. And he couldn't remember exactly what the subject matter was or what the question was, but the, the teacher asked him a question and Ed just replied, I don't know, just like he always did. Um, and I know a couple of people who do this, you know, they're smart, but when they're in the moment, they get flustered when you ask them a question and they just get nervous and they go to that default answer of, I don't know. And this is exactly what happened to Kemper in school because he was just so used to being ridiculed and made fun of. Um, and finally, this teacher was like, Ed, just think, look at it. What does this say? Read it. 
don't say I don't know because I know that you know. So what does it say? And he looked at it and he read whatever the sentence was and he told him. And the teacher was like, see, you do know. So stop putting yourself down and stop acting like you're dumb because I know you're not and you know you're not. And this really had a huge effect on him. And then taking these IQ tests and seeing the score that he got and how he scored at a near genius level, he got a very big head. And let me tell you, this guy, very intelligent, extremely intelligent. So he was admitted to a forensic psychiatric hospital. Um, He wasn't put in juvenile detention or a jail or anything like that. He was in a psychiatric unit, and this was specifically for criminals. So criminally insane patients or patients who have like serious mental illness that have committed crimes. This is where he was put. And he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, which I 100% don't think he was schizophrenic. Maybe... Maybe paranoid, I could see, but being schizophrenic, I think he just developed dark fantasies and these dark, disturbing thoughts. And I think anybody would, given the situation he was in and given the family dynamic he was in. So he actually went away to this unit for five years. He was doing extremely well and they released him. And I don't know. um, I don't know who got to decide this or how they came to this decision, but I know that there's There's individuals in America right now who are in adult prison for committing similar crimes. Most of them have a more gruesome nature, but um, basically Ed was left in this unit and it was molding him into a monster. It wasn't helping him, which is disturbing in itself. So in the time that he was at this hospital, you have to understand he was going through his adolescent phase. So it's whole like the importance of him and who he is and growing up from 15 to 20, 21 years old. I think about that for myself. And honestly, if you ask me what I remember from ages five to 10 years old, uh, I could probably pick a few things out. But if you ask me 15 to 20, I have a clear memory of things that happen from the ages 15 to 20. So like these big moments happen um, you know, not to be weird or anything, but when you're 15 years old and you you go on from that age going upward, you're starting to think about sex. You're getting into those sexual desires. And Ed would say that he masturbated multiple times a day while he was in this unit. And he wasn't developing sexually in a normal way. Um, he didn't really have a normal environment where he grew up. You know, he didn't really speak to girls of the, you know, the opposite sex in any way where he could, I guess, flirt or do what normal teenagers do. So this was kind of like a weird situation for him. He went into this place only knowing bad things about women. He knew his mom and he knew his grandma and he knew that he got bullied in school. Yeah, he had sisters, but his sisters were kind of pesty. They were pests, but he did love them and he did he did care for them in the best way that he could. But he really did not have a good experience with females up to this point. And now from 15 to 20, like he has no sense of um, flirtation or any really social dynamic with a female or let alone anybody. So this is really a detrimental thing for Ed and You'll see why as we go on with this story. So while he was in the unit, because he had such a genius level scores, 
people took advantage of him and it's kind of messed up. No, it is really messed up. The doctors in there, like some of the psychologists and psychiatrists realized that why should we do the work when Ed can do the work? And they were giving him access to things that he should not have had access to. He was distributing psychological tests to patients, like intakes. He was doing intakes to new patients. So that could be like pedophilia tests, like to see on a scale of, you know, a certain scale of pedophilia, um, schizophrenia, so many things, anything you could think of for an intake, he was doing it and he was really good at it. He was learning so much about psychology and psychiatry and not even the stuff like I learned in school. Like we're talking hands-on clinical things that you should not be doing if you don't have a license, but he was just naturally really good at it. And ironically, he was a people person and he was kind of you know, he was kind of playing these doctors, like the doctors were playing him, but he was playing them like a fiddle, you know, being treated better than other patients because he could do these things. Um, you know, it was obviously he was, it was to his benefit as much as it was to theirs, but it was not a good thing because he had access to patient files. And in these files, like he would see the questions psychologists would ask, and he started to learn exactly what these doctors wanted to hear for him to get out he just started to learn exactly what to say and do. So he was coming off as somebody who was psychologically sound. And that's really why he was let out. He was basically let out on good behavior. They were convinced they cured him, but no, you didn't cure him. You didn't help him in any way. Instead, you fed him the exact information he needed to get out. And this would, this is just a system that failed on so many levels and would fail many of Ed's victims. So it's just, the corruption that goes on in any job just baffles me. And in an instance like this, where something should be taken so seriously, I just, it pisses me off. It genuinely pisses me off. That's the best way I could put that. So by 21, Ed's out and about. His social worker, um, you know, didn't really listen to the doctors. And the doctors advised the social worker and Ed that he you know, would not move back in with his mom because clearly after heavy evaluation for five years, they know that mommy is the main issue. So they are not good for each other. They they are toxic. It is venom. And if you put this kid, well, this 21 year old back in this home, everything that he's learned and everything he's kind of become is just going to fall to the wayside and it's going to be a disaster and he could end up right back in the same place. So it could reverse everything that they did for him, even though they really didn't do much. But um, at least he had a more stable environment in a sense, I guess. But what happens? The social worker and Ed, they do not listen to the doctors. And it's not Ed's fault. The social worker failed him because it seems like they didn't really try to find Ed a more suitable place to live or get back on his feet. Instead, Ed had really no choice. He had nowhere else to go. So he had to move back in with his mom. And he was told... He had to check in with parole officers like every so often and he would. And because of what he learned in this psychiatric environment, he knew exactly what to say to the parole officers. So of course, what would the parole officer say? They'd be like, Ed is a great guy and he's a low risk. We're so happy with where he is right now and so proud of where he has come. Um, they thought he was a-okay and he was just, you know, he went into this mental hospital at 15 years old and he was dealt a pretty shitty hand of cards and unfortunately killed his grandma and grandpa. But you and I all know, and we're not professionals, that 
it shouldn't have been looked at this way. Like people were dropping the ball left and right. Ed went on to community college. He got a job with the Department of Transportation. He wanted to be a cop, but this wouldn't happen for him. Oddly enough, Ed was actually told that he was too big to be in the police department, like too tall. And at first I thought this was weird. And, you know, a couple of people who have already covered the Ed Kemper case have said the same thing. Like, wouldn't you want like a brolic dude to be there? Like, who's going to mess with a cop that's 6'9", 280-ish pounds? Like, nobody's going to mess with that. They're just going to listen, which could have been a good thing, but also could have been a disaster. But I actually read that you can be too too big for the police department, and mainly it's because of the cars, the patrol cars. He could not comfortably sit for hours on end in a patrol car. They're just not built for someone who's nearly seven feet tall, 280 pounds. So there is like a restriction for height and weight, and um, he wasn't fat by any means at this point. He was just a stocky, tall guy. So, I mean, thank God he wasn't made a police officer because sometimes, like, a lot of people find it really hard to believe, but bad apples do slip through the cracks of law enforcement, and sometimes you get somebody in there that is sociopathic, um, and it's not good. Like, everyone's human. You could get a bad doctor, just like you could get, like, a bad doctor, like, we've all heard those cases where either nurses or doctors are killing their patients and they're actually like serial killers and they're sick people just like that. The same chances could happen that we get a cop who is a sociopath and enjoys killing people and who wants to use authority and they're sick of the world beating them down, but now they have the upper hand and they're a police officer and they have the authority. So that could have been the recipe for absolute disaster. It's not unheard of. It's happened before, and chances are it could happen again. Needless to say, Ed moves back in with Mom, and Mom moved, so now they're in Santa Cruz, California, where much of the crime is about to begin. So Ed was kind of like, I don't want to say obsessed, but he's very infatuated with the police department. He became a police groupie, which I didn't even know there was such a thing, but There are police groupies, kind of like a band groupie or whatever, but I thought that was really interesting. So he spent much of his time at a bar called the Jury Room, where all the cops, like, hung out. He became really good friends with the police department. He would have drinks with them. He'd stop there on his free time to catch up with them. He would buy a motorcycle that was kind of similar to a police motorcycle, and he'd buy a car that was similar to like an undercover police car so it was really weird which is kind of ironic because it was a small car and just for the same reason like he wasn't allowed in the police department he was too big he was really big for this car so I guess like if they would have let him in he wouldn't have really cared about the car because he drove it around like everywhere so I thought that was a little interesting tidbit so I guess like on one day it must have been one day I don't think there's one specific moment but Ed was driving around you know, where he lives in California in his nice police car. He wanted to be a police officer so, so terribly bad. But in the time he was driving around, he started to notice that there were a lot of hitchhikers in California, specifically the area he was living in. And his mom worked for a local university. So he would have to pick her up a lot of the times from work, so she actually provided him with a sticker to be able to have access into the university parking lots and parking. And, you know, 
Ed kind of put two and two together and realized he had a lot of access to college-educated women. Um, going forward, I'm going to call them co-eds. And I'm sure if you've heard, you know, you've heard of Ted Bundy and what he's done, you know, he was kind of like, he killed co-eds as well, which is, I originally used to not know what co-ed was. And then I figured out it's college-educated. Um, so these co-ed females um, were hitchhiking. And at the time, it's like the 70s very much the hippie era, carefree, um, very trusting of people. It was a trusting time in America. And honestly, going from this time in the 70s and forever on, us Americans would not be so trusting and hitchhiking is something you almost never see anymore. And Ed Kemper is a huge reason why. So he started realizing all these hitchhikers and he started to develop this fantasy of picking them up and kidnapping them, having his way with them and killing them. And he was having these fantasies of cutting off their heads and hands, which later in an interview, Ed would talk about how he was younger when he was like eight years old around the time where he really started getting put in the basement that he was at a comic book shop and there was a magician and the magician had one of those um, guillotines or not even a guillotine, whatever those things are that like, you know, cut off the volunteer's head, you know, whatever it's called, there's a word for it, but they had that. And yeah, they, he, the magician had called up a volunteer and it was this woman or it, it might have been a teenager, but it was an older female than Ed was. And Ed described her to be like the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. And no one had ever compared to the beauty this woman had. And he was so excited because he thought somebody was really going to get their head chopped off. Super excited to see it. For an eight-year-old, that's a little odd. You know, you get excited to buy a new comic book. You don't get excited over heads being chopped off. I remember the first time I saw a magician. And they did that, like, body separating illusion thing. And I was terrified. I remember, like, in my head seeing the other kids, like, excited and everything. And I was just like, are you guys, like, out of your minds? I remember, like, running to my mom and, like, getting upset over it. But here's little Ed Kemper, really excited that a beautiful girl's about to get her head cut off. So, needless to say, they do the magic trick. And lo and behold, obviously the volunteer's head was not decapitated. And this upset Ed because he was like, damn, shucks. I really wanted to see somebody get their head cut off. Now, thinking about this and thinking about how he used to antagonize his sister and pop the Barbie doll heads off, um, that there's something to be said for that. He used to cut the hands off of dolls, too. I don't really know where he got the hand cutting from, but that was just something that really enticed him. And furthermore, stuff I didn't touch upon in... Edge childhood, just like other serial killers, usually there's arson or there's animal cruelty involved. In this case, it wasn't arson. It was the animal cruelty, and Ed had a fascination with harming cats. And I'm going to tell you guys right now, if you don't like to hear about the injury of animals, I totally get it. Just skip forward a bit, um, because it it sucks what he did. It really sucks. But they had their household cat when Ed was younger. I think he was around 12 years old. Correct me if I'm wrong. But basically, he was really curious, like, about killing the cat. So he took their their cat, their pet, 
and he went in the backyard and he dug a hole and he buried the cat alive. Once he realized the cat was dead, I don't, I don't know what that entails, how he really knew, or if he just left the cat there for like a long time and then went back. But basically he dug up the dead cat, took it out and dismembered the cat and was kind of like messing with its insides and was really infatuated with taking it apart. So that's what happened. He hurt that cat. I'm pretty sure he hurt another cat. I don't really remember. I watched so many freaking documentaries about this, but needless to say, this is clearly a red flag. Another red flag. He's harming animals. What What's next on the list? You harm people. So here we are where that moment just pops into his head. Like he's driving and he sees a hitchhiker and he's like, what would happen if I picked up a hitchhiker? So Ed starts experimenting. For a while, he's picking up girls from the college, and, you know, at first, I'm sure they're intimidated. He's a big guy. Even sitting down in the car, you can tell he's filling out that car pretty well. And, you know, these girls would be assured by him because he was driving around the university with a parking permit sticker that he was one of them. You know, oh, he doesn't look much older than me, so he looks the age of a college student. He's going in the same direction. Like, I trust him. So, you know, I'm sure they had that gut instinct, but they see these little things and they're like, yeah, who's to say? Like, you know, he's a college student just like me, whatever. So for a while, Ed starts to develop this routine of picking them up and figuring out what makes them comfortable and uncomfortable. So doing certain things, he would start doing this weird, like, maneuver where he would extend his hand to like over the girl, like completely invading their personal space and open their passenger side door and like shutting it and just being like, Oh, your door wasn't shut all the way. And in the meantime, when he takes his arm back, he drops a chapstick and it goes on the floor and the girl picks it up. So the girl doesn't even really have a minute to escape. Even if she wanted to, it's almost like a distraction he uses. So, um, I thought that was really eerie because like who thinks of this who's like how can like what can I do to make them feel like oh you had your moment to go but at the same time you know I drop a chapstick that distracts you so even if you had that split second of wanting to jump out of the car and you know a normally good person would pick up what fell and give it to the person it's just common courtesy so it's a little interesting how his mind works obviously disturbing So, yeah, that's what happens there. And finally, he starts to get comfortable and he starts to know how long it takes for a girl to realize they're they're going in the wrong direction. Like he would purposely drive a girl in the wrong direction to see how long it would take for her to say anything or if she would say anything. So that way, you know, when the time came and he really did want to kill someone, he kind of had an idea of the time frame and the timeline, which is gross. So, yeah, his first victims would be Anita and Marianne, and they were co-ed students, and they needed a ride. He picked both of them up, which is pretty ballsy, if you ask me. That's two girls. I mean, there's one of him, which looks like two men put together, but yeah. He took both girls, um, and he pulls over on the side of the road. He So he takes Anita at knife point, and gets her to get in the trunk of the car and in the meantime he has locked Marianne in the car now I'm 
Unsure of whether Marianne could get out of the car or if once Ed locked her in, she was kind of stuck in there. Like I said, it was like a replica police car he had bought, so there's a good chance that she couldn't get out. And I don't know about you guys, but the first thing that went through my mind is why didn't Marianne try to run away? Like, maybe maybe she couldn't have gotten out. The first thing we think of is, like, what we would do in the situation, and that's only natural. Like, I would have done A, B, and C, or why didn't she do this? But at the end of the day, you don't truly know what you would do unless you're in that situation. The body and the mind work in interesting ways and fight or flight is a very interesting thing so who really knows what happened at the end of the day ed knows what happened so you've got these two terrified 18 year old girls stuck at arm's length of this man so ed slams the trunk door and anita's stuck in the trunk and he goes back into the car and he viciously stabs marianne to death so at this moment, Anita hears everything that's happening. She can hear her best friend being stabbed to death. So I'm sure I could not imagine the fear that she was in in that moment. It, I don't think there's words that could explain or describe it. And then Ed would finish the job and he would go to the trunk and he would viciously stab Anita to death. Now, at the time, Ed had been renting an apartment, like he did live with his mom on and off, and because he got that transportation job, he was making, like, a steady income, so from time to time, he would be able to live and support himself, but there were times where he couldn't, and at this time, he had his own apartment, so he brought the two dead co-eds back to his apartment, and he dismembered them, and he dumped them up in the mountains in California. So at the end of all of this, Anita's head was eventually discovered, but the rest of her body was not. And then Mary Ann, none of her remains were ever located. Oh, and just as a tidbit, because I'm going back and editing right now. But so what happened with Mary Ann in the car, she was actually handcuffed and Kemper handcuffed cuffed her in the car. So that's why she was not able to escape. And in the meantime, while he was handcuffing her, he accidentally grazed his hand or arm up against her breast, and he was really embarrassed by this. In his interview, he would explain, like, how mortified he was and how he apologized to her and was just, like, profusely sorry about it. But the weird part is he would end up murdering her minutes later. So this guy is such a strange, strange individual. I also found that while he was driving these, dis well, I mean, these dead corp, well, these corpses, to his apartment, he was actually stopped by a police officer because his taillight was out, but unfortunately the police officer did not detect that there were corpses in his car. So the irony of that is just, ugh, he probably got off on that, honestly. And also a disturbing note here, he actually took pictures of Marianne and Anita's corpses and, you know, his the naked bodies and then had intercourse with them. He is a necrophiliac so he has sex with dead bodies yeah to make the matter even worse he dismembered their bodies and put them in plastic bags and before he dumped their heads their severed heads he inserted his genitalia into their mouths and performed oral sex with their heads so yeah i wasn't kidding when i said that this story is Really not for the faint of heart. It is heavy, heavy subject material, I guess you could say, subject matter. 
he just had such a sick and depraved mind. All the while, while, you know, Ed is, Ed just committed the murder of these two girls, he is hanging out at the jury, the jury room bar with police officers and listening to them talk about these two girls and how the one is missing and they located a head and not the rest of the body. And after like an extensive search, they only came up with the one head and there he is. They're sitting right next to the killer. They're enjoying their time, their free time with him and having freaking cocktails and beers for God's sake. It's unbelievable. Now, Ed's next victim was younger than the rest. She was 15 years old. Her name's Aiku Ku. And on the evening of September 14th, 1972, she was looking for a ride. She was afraid she was going to miss dance class. She had just missed the bus, so she did not want to miss dance at all. So now they cross the bridge over to San Francisco, I believe, where her dance class is located. And he drove right across the bay and just kept going. He bound, gagged, and suffocated Aiku. I, yeah, Aikoku. I hope I'm saying her name right. If I'm not, I'm really sorry. So he actually locked himself out of the car when he pulled over. And ironically, she let him back in the car. So yeah, at this point, that's, you know, he gets back in the car and he proceeds to choke her unconscious, raped her, and killed her. Kemper then packs Ku's body into the trunk of his car and he went to the jury bar, the jury room, of course, to go have a drink with his buddies. And then he returned to his apartment. He would later recall in an interview that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, admiring his quote unquote catch like a fisherman would admire. So like catching a freaking fish. It's disgusting. She's not a fish. She's a human being. But he he didn't he couldn't understand that. He didn't see people as humans. He saw them as objects, especially women. So. He takes Ku's body back to his apartment where he has sexual intercourse with her corpse, dismembered her, and disposed of the remains in a similar manner as Anita and Marianne. Ku's mother would, you know, worry and call the police to report the disappearance of her daughter, and she put up hundreds and hundreds of flyers looking for her daughter and asking for any information anyone could possibly have, but she did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status. Horrible. That's the worst nightmare of any parent. Ed did a very interesting thing. He would dismember these bodies and, you know, he would dump the body parts in different locations so it'd be harder for the police department to detect the murderer or really be able to put everything together. It would just take more time as well. So that was something he liked to do. And in one of the documentaries I watched, one of the detectives would recall how they found body parts not far from his home at all. Um, The detective lived on a block and down the block was like a wooded area. And just like hundreds of feet away were dumped body parts. And how disturbing is that? The detective would talk about how It was just crazy to think about because he would go to work and leave his wife at home with their child. And there's some sexually deprived maniac on the loose. So Ed had an extreme sexual pathology, obviously. And, you know, it's just crazy. This whole time, this detective's out here looking for a killer. Meanwhile, he's so close to home. Ed's next victim would be Cindy Shaw. 
And this was January 7th, 1973. So there was a big gap of time before he killed another person. Although this is really what he tells us. Who knows? There could have been others that we don't even know about. But at this point, um, Ed was having financial difficulties. So he moves in back in with his mom. And he was driving around one of the college campuses that were local to him. And he picked up 18-year-old student Cynthia, went by Cindy, Shaw. And he drove to a wooded area where he fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car, like he normally would. And he drove to his mom's house, where he kept the body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. He kept a dead woman in his closet, people. Ugh, it just sent a chills down my spine. When his mother left for work the next day, he decided to have sexual intercourse with the corpse. And he actually removed the bullet from Cindy's head. And then he dismembered her and decapitated her. And he did all, he did all of this in his mom's bathtub, mind you. So, unlike the other victims Kemper would keep Cindy's head for several days and he was regular engaging in e- <laughs> he was regular engaging in oral sex with her head um ugh, I'm sorry it's so hard for me to even say that because it's just such a disturbing act that I don't know I don't know I'm a human being guys I'm sorry it just it makes me uncomfortable as it should but then he buried Cindy's head in his mom's garden and he tilted the head facing upward t- toward her bedroom when he is later arrested he stated he did that because his mother always wanted people to look up to her in a comical act he decided that this would be funny and would put her head in his mom's garden tilted up at her room yeah real funny disgusting so he discarded the rest of shawl's remains by throwing them off a cliff how lovely and over the course of the next few weeks, everything except her head and her right hand were discovered, and they were pieced together like a puzzle. A pathologist determined that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. So on February 5th, 1973, after Kemper got into a really, really bad argument with his mom, he left his house extremely frustrated, and he decided to go on the hunt for possible victims. Now, at the time... There was heightened suspicion that there was a serial killer on the loose preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area. So students were advised to only accept rides from, yep, wait for it, from cars with university stickers on them. And as I've already told you, Kemper had such a sticker because his mom worked at the university and had provided that for him. So, ugh, makes me so fucking angry. So he ends up encountering a 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Lou. She she was known as Allison. But he encountered both of them, and according to Ed, Thorpe entered his car first, and she reassured Allison that it was okay to enter the car. And he didn't even wait. He fatally shot both of them with his 22 caliber pistol. And then he wrapped their bodies in blankets. So, again, Kemper goes through his little routine, and he brings the victims back to his mom's house. And this time, he couldn't even wait. He beheaded them in the car, and he carried the headless corpses into his mom's house to have sexual intercourse with them. 
so then he dismembered their bodies. He removed the bullets to prevent identification if it came down to forensics. And the next morning he got rid of the remains. He just disposed of them like they were trash. Um, some of their remains were located at Eden Canyon a little bit about a week later. And then more were found near Highway 1 in March of that year. So later he was questioned in an interview as to why he chose to cut off his victim's heads. And he explained that the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Yeah, that was a direct quote from him. Pretty startling. So now we're getting to the end of Kemper's freaking atrocities, monstrosities. So we're at the point where Kemper will get to act out a fantasy he had been longing to act out for a very long time now. So I bring you to April 20th of 1973. So Clarnell, just to remind you, that's Ed's mom. She's 52 years old at this point. She's coming home from a party and she wakes Ed up as she enters the home. She's reading, you know, she gets ready for bed. She sits in bed. She's reading a book when she realizes that Ed has entered the room. She then says, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemper replied, nope, good night. He then waited for his mom to fall asleep, and then he returned to her bedroom and bludgeoned her with a claw hammer. He also went on to slit her throat with a knife. So then, as always, he decapitates the head, and he engages in oral sex with his mom's decapitated head. He then goes on to do something really, really disturbing, as if this story didn't have enough disturbing elements to it he places the head on the mantle and he begins to use his mom's head as a dartboard Kemper went on to state that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour while throwing darts at it he ultimately smashed her face in he also cut out her tongue and larynx and he decided to put them in a garbage disposal however that disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. And Kemper would say, that seemed appropriate, as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. So I guess that was his ultimate way of silencing her. So Kemper then hid his mom's corpse in the closet and he went to go drink at a nearby bar. As he returned home, he decided to invite his mom's best friend over. And this was 59-year-old Sarah taylor hallett also known as sally so she comes over the house for what she believes is a dinner and to watch a movie with ed and carnell and when she arrives kemper immediately strangles her to death to create a cover story that his mother and sally had gone away together on vacation so he needed to kill her to make it seem plausible that they both just left so he ended up putting sally's corpse in the closet and he cleaned up, made sure there wasn't really any outward signs of a disturbance, and he left a note to the police because he knew that eventually the police would come to his home. So the note read, it's approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, 
No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just the lack of time. I got things to do. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. So after he created this mess, he drove nonstop all the way to Pueblo, Colorado. He took caffeine pills along the way so he could stay awake, and he drove for over a thousand miles. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car and believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mom or Sally, he found a phone booth and he decided to call the police and confess. He confessed to the murders of his mom and Sally, but the police did not take his call seriously. And they told him to call back at a later time. And I guess they didn't take it seriously because this was Big Ed. They The police described him to be a big teddy bear. Extremely nice, funny, pleasant, outgoing. One of the boys. So when he called the first time, they thought he was kidding. And then several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He then confessed to this officer that he did kill his mom. And he waited for the police to arrive and take him into custody. So he also went on to confess to the murders of those six co-ed students. And later he was asked in an interview why he turned himself in. And Kemper said the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said, to hell with it, and I called it all off. So, in May on May 7th of 1973, Kemper's indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. So, due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, his attorney's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity to these charges, and Kemper twice tried to commit suicide while in custody. Um, he would steal a pen from someone and smuggle it out. And he dropped the pen on the floor. And he actually used his boot to, like, break the pen and kind of grind it up against the floor. And then grabbed it and tried slitting his own wrist with it on one occasion. So his trial went ahead on until October 23rd, 1973. And three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he had was once psychotic. Fort also interviewed Kemper, including under this truth serum, which I know I've mentioned before in one of my podcast episodes, that truth serum is indeed a real thing. And while under this truth serum, this doctor relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism as well. But obviously, we don't really have proof of this, but allegedly, while under the truth serum, this is what he said. He said he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, and he cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Nevertheless, Ford determined that Kemper was fully competent in each case and stated that Kemper actually enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled as a serial killer, as a murderer. And Kemper later recanted the confession of cannibalism and said he didn't do it. But I mean, this truth serum is said to be pretty, um, pretty good. It works. So 
I think that maybe he was just embarrassed of the cannibalism, but I could so I could so see it happening. It's definitely a plausible thing. Um, you know how there's really not much a better way to consume a person in all they are and all that they ever have been than eating them. As sick as that is, we all know that it's not unheard of. So, you know, Kemper completely understood that what he did was wrong. He knew that he showed signs of malice throughout all of the murders and that he was able to even have an afterthought on what he did. So this goes completely against the Manhattan standard, which is, you know, established um, as a defense of insanity and you know, judging by from like what Kemper said in his interviews and his confessions, he was clearly sane. He knew exactly what he did. So, of course, that defense of insanity did not work. So on November 1st, Kemper took the stand and he testified that he killed the victims because they want he wanted them all for himself, like possessions. And he attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could only have been committed by someone with an aberrant mind. He said two beings inhabited his body and that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. But obviously, I know that I've heard of stories of people blacking out and they have no recollect recollection of what they did, but Kemper knew exactly what he did. So on November 8th, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours and declared Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. So he did request the death penalty and he wanted death by torture. And obviously, instead, he received seven years to life for each count with these terms to be served concurrently. And he was sentenced to California medical facility. But like seven years to life, that's an interesting thing to say. I guess that's just California law. But he was sentenced to a medical facility once again, not even like a prison. So, yeah, this California medical facility um, has Kemper incarcerated, and he's been in the same prison block as the notorious criminal Herbert, Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. So go figure. And Herbert Mullen, ironically, had committed his own murders at the same time as Kemper and in the same area. So this was there was a lot going on in California, and this became the capital murder state, uh, like the capital of homicide in the United States of America because of all of the murderous activity going on. Now, Kemper um, was in the same cell as Mullen, and he hated Mullen. Honestly, he looked at Herbert just as a cold-blooded killer who killed everybody saw for no good reason. Which, what good reason did you have, Ed? You didn't. But Kemper ended up manipulating and physically intimidating Mullen. Mullen was 5'7", so just a little bit shorter than, oh, I mean a lot shorter, excuse me, than Kemper. And he was more than a foot shorter, actually. But Kemper stated that Mullen had a very rude habit of singing and annoying people when they were trying to watch TV. So Kemper didn't deal with this very well. He would throw water at Mueller to shut him up. 
And he said that when Herbert was a good boy and listened and didn't sing while people were watching TV and didn't annoy anybody, he'd feed him peanuts. Quote, unquote, Herbie likes peanuts. And he said that this was effective pretty soon as Herbert would begin asking Kemper for permission to sing in general. And Kemper would go on to say that's called behavior modification treatment. Lovely. So to this day, Kemper remains among general population in this prison, and he's considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists, and he was an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of audiobooks for the blind. And a Los Angeles Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed recordings to his name. And he was retired from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared medically disabled. He received his first rules violation report in 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample. So, wow, it took that long for him to actually have a violation in prison. Hmm. During his time in prison, Kemper participated in a lot of interviews, including a segment, um, The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary, Murder, No Apparent Motive. So his interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. FBI profiler John Douglas, I'm sure we all know him, Mindhunter, he described Kemper as among the brightest prison inmates he had ever interviewed and capable of rare insight for a, a violent criminal. Ed is just very forthcoming about the nature of his crimes. He knows exactly what he did. And he stated that he had participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. So the very interesting, interesting thing about Kemper is he was fully aware. And I think he actually had a lot of disdain and disgust for himself and what he did. Um, it's weird. Like, he is not like other serial killers who really don't have any emotion. Kemper did have emotion and he did have like a set of morals and like a moral code and rules like how he accidentally grazed um that one girl's breast like that really mortified him like he was just very very strange per strange person and it's just a shame because like had he not had a horrible upbringing and been forced to sleep in a damp cold dark cellar maybe Kemper would have became an intellectual that could have helped make this world better. And that's scary to say, and I'm not by any means giving him like sympathy or a reason for what he did, but it just goes to show that people, when you're raising children, even starting from infancy, it's important that you treat them with care, that you don't do these things. Because even like in a non-serious manner, like you might be a ne neglectful parent and you might not even realize like the devastation it is doing um, to your children. So everybody, please like, just be, be careful with our children, make them, you know, give them a good environment to grow up in as best as you can, because this is why we can't have nice things in life because there are monsters around the corner sometimes. And like I've said before, some people are luckier than others, but Kemper was given a pretty shitty hand of cards, and this is what he turned into. 
So Kemper has been eligible for parole before and he has been denied every single time. And I think it's for the best because I don't think this, I don't think there's really any fixing him. I think he can have um, an understanding of what he has done and how horrible it is. But I think that there's just impulsivity inside of him that he can't control. And I know a lot of people, like this isn't like, a, you know, only my thought, but I do believe that Kemper was killing his mom every time he killed a co-ed. I think that he just had a horrible relationship with females and from the way he was brought up and these dark fantasies he was left to have, it all just manifested into this disaster. And I truly just believe that he was killing his mom every single time. So Kemper has gone on to influence many works of film and literature. He inspired Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And just like Kemper, Bill fa uh, Buffalo Bill fatally shoots his grandparents as a teenager. So if you read the book Silence of the Lambs, you would know that little tidbit. tidbit. And I'm sure if you guys have all watched um, Mindhunter, you know about Ed Kemper already because he was like a pivotal role in that film. And he played a very key role in John Douglas's life and understanding um, serial killers. So unfortunately, what he did really um, ended up giving us insight into what we know about serial killers. And it's horrible that this is what had to happen for us to understand but yeah that's ed Kemp that's edmund kemper guys he was known as the co-ed killer and you know that's our first notorious november episode so i look forward to the next few weeks of november so i can keep bringing you guys these notorious cases but as i said definitely leave me a comment or dm me on any of my social media accounts if there is a specific case that is well known it could be international it could be just in the u.s it could be in your country if there's something that is very well known around you or where you live let me know because this is notorious november and i am open to suggestions so i hope you guys liked this episode about Edmund Kemper. I know the subject matter is pretty disturbing, but that as always with true crime comes some disturbing information and facts. So it is what it is. And I mean, you did come here for true crime, right? So as always, I'm going to post pictures of crime scenes or crime photos. Um, there's not many. I don't really go on to show like all the gory photos. I know some people do like to see that. Um, however, I'm very mindful of the people who do follow me and there are people who like to listen to true crime podcasts and forensic files and all that and they'd rather not see the gruesome images which I totally understand which is why I don't post them they're on google if you really want to see them but I post um crime scene photos that I think are relevant to my podcast and what I look to display to you guys so definitely check out Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, so you can see crime scene photos. I have my show notes posted so you can see where I got my information from. I'm going to include some um, documentaries on there. And shout out to Bailey Sarian because I watched her episode about Ed Kemper and I really liked the way she laid it out. So I did um, look at the way she laid that laid out her episode and I kind of just like got an idea of how I was going to formulate this episode. 
because she did a very good job. But I mean, we do differ in many ways. But shout out to Bailey Sarian because she's amazing. And if you guys love YouTubers and you want to see a true crime uh, YouTuber, she's amazing. Check her out. She's gorgeous. And she's just really good at what she does. That That's all I got for you folks. I will see you next Monday. I will be coming out the YouTube video for this episode. If you haven't already checked out my YouTube, it is Brittany Alexandra. You can check out my social media. I've posted links to my YouTube. So if you're interested in going to watch the video I have up for my final Ghoultober episode, please check me out. Hit the like button. Subscribe if you're feeling super sweet. Leave me a comment. Whatever. Um, if you're not into YouTube, that's cool too. That's why I am going to continue with this podcast because this podcast is what got me started. And personally, I like podcasting a lot better because I don't have to put my face in it. But some people like a visual, which is totally okay. So yeah, until next week, guys, stay safe. Um, please don't hitchhike. Use your brains and don't trust strangers. I feel like I'm a mom. Well, if you don't have a mom telling you that, now you've got me. Make sure you're not trusting strangers and just getting into cars with strangers. Make sure you're not just meeting up with random people and you're not just hitchhiking. All right? Drop your locations, me, if you want somebody to know where you are. If you're going on a, like, Tinder date or you're going to meet a new friend. Because there are crazy people out there. Okay? All right. Well, I love you all. Bye. Thanks for listening. And I'll see, for, see you soon and hopefully hear from you soon.